As I said, this is going to be a 12-week course, and you may wonder what qualifies me to uh, teach this. Well, I am the senior pastor of our church here, but that's not what qualifies me so much. It is that I am a fellow soldier in the war that is parenting. That uh, I am a parent as well, and I am with you in this parenting task. And all parents know that it's hard, but we all know as well that it's exhilarating. We all know that it's painful, but we also know that it's, it's joyful. We know it's time-consuming, and it's costly, and it's draining, but it's absolutely worth it. And so I want you to know that I know that from the outset as a fellow parent who knows all sides of that as you know or are experiencing or are preparing to experience because I'm a parent too. And my wife and I know the hardship, the exhilaration, the pain, the joy, the cost, the value, and we conclude, like you do, that it's absolutely worth it. And so you don't know me, some of you anyway, but I want you to know that I know at least that much. I'm a fellow soldier in the delightful war for our children's souls. And I'm engaged in that battle with my wife. And that is us outside the uh, metro airport back in uh, January, just before I was leaving to go to India for a couple of weeks. And that's, of course, me in the middle. And then to my left there is my wife, Kim. And uh, Kim is not going to be in this se these sessions with us because she is serving in our children's ministry, the 12 weeks that we're doing this, so that some of you can be in here. But what that really means is I can blame her for all of our parenting woes, and, and you won't say anything to her about it, right? And then on my right there is our 15-year-old, Elena. We call her Lainey. And then uh, in the middle is Annie, and she is our 12-year-old. So we have a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. And in that amount of time, in those 15 years, then, we have gone through the full gamut of uh, what it means to struggle as a parent. And so I want you to know that I speak uh, from experience, but more importantly, we're going to see that we try to speak and we try to implement in our families what God has said about the way we ought to parent. And so we're going to cover all aspects of parenting, including family life in general, and we're going to begin today and for the next few weeks of our 12 weeks together looking at some foundational issues that are related to this all-important task of parenting. So we've got a lot to cover in about 40 minutes now. So let's begin. And if you look at the very first page in your course, at the top it says course description. And I say there, it's often said that parenting comes with no instruction manual. And it's strange that we spend years training for our careers, pursuing our enjoyments, but many enter parenthood with little conscious thought given to one of the most important tasks on earth. So would you all agree with that, that that's the way we often go into to parenting? In fact, I would say most people go into parenting that way. Now, we may have, you know, read some books to try to bone up we've, and all of that, but most of what we've done is prepare the room, get the crib, have the shower, make sure we got the right color clothes, if it's going to be a boy or a girl, all of that. But then when it comes to the most important questions with regard to parenting, the truth is most of us are not quite prepared 
when the, when the time comes. It's similar to what we do with marriage. With marriage, we put time into the wedding, but we don't put a whole lot of time into preparing for the marriage. And then after the honeymoon, life settles in. And then we start to try to figure it out. When, I think we would all say in hindsight, we would all have been much better off had we prepared for marriage before the wedding. And we would have been in much better, much better shape. In fact, I say when I do weddings in the ceremonies, I say that, you know, the number one cause of divorce is not what most people think. It's not things like communication and finances and sex. It's not those things. The number one cause of divorce is marriage. And what I mean by that is that people go into marriage with false notions about its purpose and their role in it. And failure to prepare for that puts us behind the game uh, really before it's even started. And the same thing is true in parenting. We prepare for all kinds of things, but we don't prepare very well for parenting. Today it takes six months, maybe it's a year, for a kid to get a license. It used to be when I was a teenager, you had a 30-day driver's permit. And then after that 30 days, if you had no infractions, you got your driver's license. And now it's a six-month thing, and you have to log so many miles with an adult supervising all that, which personally I think is a good thing. But it's more preparation. It takes time. And so I think we would agree it's important for us to put the time into things that are important, things like marriage and things like parenting. We say there in your notes that God established the family to be the crucible in which we learn of him, his world, and how to interact with creation, both people and things. God has given the family as the vehicle through which children are to learn. And we're going to see that God has established the family and thus us as parents as the primary educators for the learning process for our children. Now, if you have more than if you if you have more than one child, you can properly be called a parent. You say, I'm here and I've got one child, you're telling me I'm not a parent. I'm just telling you what Bill Cosby says. Okay? He says if if you have only one child, you're you're not necessarily a parent because you always know who did it. You don't have to deal with all of the arguing and all of that and trying to find out, doing the detective work to find out who did it. But the point of that is is this, is that in the family we have all sorts of disputes that arise between children, between children and and their parents. And because of that, it is the crucible in which God wants us to be taught about life. And he wants, therefore, parents to be the major educators in teaching our children about life as we continue to learn about it ourselves. God has indeed, we say, given an instruction manual in the pages of Scripture to guide us in raising our children in what Scripture calls the training and the instruction of the Lord. And so contrary to the notion that the Bible's old and irrelevant and doesn't apply to things that we face each day, the truth is the Bible has very uh, is, is loaded with practical advice about how we go about the day-to-day tasks involved in this important issue of parenting. And I hope in the weeks ahead you'll see that that statement is, is true. Therefore, this course, we say, will survey what the Scriptures say about why God has given us children and how we're to go about that, that task. Why has God given us children? And once I know why God has given us children, 
then I can talk about how it is I'm supposed to go about accomplishing the purpose for which God has given them. Thus the title of the series, Parenting with Purpose. And the truth is, friends, we should always ask the why question before we get into the how questions. Much of what you read today about any issue, including marriage and parenting, are all about how. And I can prove this to you. If you go to a Borders or to a Barnes and Noble and just go to their section on parenting or family issues, and it will be filled with books that start with the word how. Want it? How to. And they are all designed to be how to manuals, very few, if any, discuss why it is we're engaged in this particular thing to begin with, whether it's marriage or parenting or whatever it is. The why question should come before the how question. Let me illustrate why that's so important. I have occasion to get to counsel a decent number of people about various family issues. Let's suppose you had a husband who came for counsel and he said, look, my wife and I need to learn how to communicate better. We just don't communicate well. And it's really hurting us in our relationship. And as we're going to see in this material, communication is certainly very important to the home, to parenting, and to marriage. But he comes, he says, I want you to help us learn how to communicate better. And if I just go straight to how to communicate, and I don't first spend some time talking about why we communicate, why we're married, why you have a role as a husband and why you have a role as a wife. If I don't get to that, I may never find out that this guy has an extreme problem with control, let's say. He's a very controlling, and in his controlling, he's very manipulative in his relationship. Now, if I don't find that out, then, and I go straight to how to communicate, guess what? I've just taught this controlling, manipulative guy how to more effectively control and manipulate. The first thing we have to do is say, why are we engaged in this activity? And that includes parenting. And then we go to how we go about it. And so we're not content to just leave us where we are and to give us better tools to move in the wrong direction. We can never be content to just say, this is where you are. Now let me give you some more how-tos that may, in fact, be leading you and continuing you in the wrong direction. We want to ask the why question so that we know the direction we should be going. We want to see why God has given the home, why he's given us children, and then see practically how we can move in the direction that he has for us. Again, the title, Parenting with Purpose. And so in the process, we'll touch on all aspects of family relationship, love and communication and forgiveness and so on, so that all may benefit from our time together. Because in this group, we have people in different demographics represented. You have people who have one child, people who have multiple children. You have people who don't have any kids yet, but they're trying to prepare themselves for the time that they will. We have folks represented in this room who are married. We have folks who are parents, but single parents for various reasons. Single parents because we were never married. Single parents because a spouse has, has left or a spouse has, has died. Uh, we have single parents represented in this room who are adoptive single parents. And so we have people in different situations. And I encourage all of you, if you are able, to come to the entire series because the principles that we will lay out 
will apply to everyone in all of those situations. We are going to have a couple of sessions where we talk about husbands and wives. You say, if I'm a single parent, then how does that apply to me? But you do need to show what God's purpose is in having a husband and a wife present in the home, even if you don't have that, so that you have an idea of what that's supposed to be like. And that, and so that we, as the body of Christ, as the church, can help supplement that and strengthen you in your task of raising children as a single father or mother. So following, then, is an example of the topics on that first page that we're going to cover over these next several weeks. And we've got some recommended resources as well. We're going to cover God's purpose for the family, communication, the relationship between marriage and parenting, various roles within it, the three phases of child development, and this is where we'll begin to get into the how of parenting at various ages for, for each child, how to handle discipline issues and related matters. Now, those recommended resources, for the sake of time, I am not going to go through this three-page list right now. Uh, what I'm going to do is, as we cover the categories that are represented in that list, then I will tell you the one or two resources that if you were to pick up for that particular thing, these are the one or two that I would most recommend. Because many of these have more than one, as you see listed there. Most of us have limited funds and limited time to read them. And so I'll give you the one or two that I think are most important for that particular category as we go forward in our weeks together. For now, we're looking at, we're going to look at parenting in general. And if you look at that category on that page, let me recommend the two books listed at the bottom by Ted Tripp, Instructing a Child's Heart and Shepherding a Child's Heart. And so if you were to get no other books on, on parenting, those are the two that I would recommend you get. And if you only get one, get Shepherding a Child's Heart, because Instructing is actually a sequel to Shepherding. So Shepherding a Child's Heart. Now, one other announcement about resources, and we'll move on to Lesson 1. We have a resource table over by the window. And for these resources, we will be happy to order those for you. Unfortunately, we can't have lots of these things in stock here because this is not our building. So we can't have lots of uh, inventory. But we're happy to get these for you and get them for you quickly. So if you go to the resource table uh, following our session today or in any of the sessions, you can uh, give them your name. There's actually an order form over there. Let them know what you want, and then we will we'll get it for you. They also have the prices uh, for these resources listed over there as well, all right? So please turn to page one, and let's begin with lesson one. Stability in the midst of change. Let me ask you, do you, as a parent, do you feel like it's harder now? That it's harder now to be a parent than it used to be? You know, when I was a, a kid, it seemed like people just raised their kids. And it didn't seem like most people that were hung out in my neighborhood and, you know, I grew up in church and so the people in my church, it didn't seem like they had that much difficulty with it. People just raised their kids. We all played together. This was back in the days when people had front porches because we socialized with each other. This was before the days when everybody went to the back deck surrounded by a fortress of walls so that no one can see me. And the truth is, the way we construct our houses today, you could actually come out of your little cubbyhole 
That is your house, right? Your garage, it opens. You come out. You go to work. It was dark when you left. It's dark when you come back. You go back in. And the only time you have to interact with your neighbors is if you happen to have the misfortune of running into them when you're getting the mail or taking out the garbage. But back in the day, it was a society where people talked to each other and interacted with each other. And we had front porches, and everybody was out in the front porch, and all the kids were out in the front plan. And everybody knew each other. And it all seemed to go fairly well. It seemed fairly easy back in those days. Now it may seem harder because you're the one doing it. Or it may be that your parents really did have a hard time and they didn't let you know how hard it was. Undoubtedly, it was harder than it looked for all of us. But I have to tell you that if you think it's harder now, I'm in that boat with you. It seems to me it's harder now as well. And in fact, I think there's empirical evidence to say that raising a child today is more difficult than it used to be for a number of reasons. And I say at the top of that first page, we live in a day of unprecedented change. Unprecedented is a big word. It's an important, it's a significant word. But it is an accurate word. We live in a day of unprecedented change. In, in our lifetimes, we have seen the fall of one of the great superpowers of the world. What a huge seismic change it was in 1989 when the Soviet Union and communism fell. I mean, just a, ten years earlier, no one would have imagined that a change like that could, could have happened. In our lifetimes, we have had the advent of the personal computer. Every family has one. We have had the advent of the, the cell phone. In my married life, which is 25 years, I've been married to Kim. We celebrated our 25th in this past February. And in our 25 years together, when we first started, nobody had cell phones. If I was going to be late home from work, I had no way to tell her. If I was stopped in traffic, I had no way to tell her. Now I just am on the cell phone all the time, not texting, just on the cell phone. It's probably still illegal. We've had the advent of the PC, of the cell phone. In fact, some of you are looking up scores right now from last night's games as I talk. We have technology that enables the pace of change to go at a very rapid rate. My dad died in 1974 when I was 11. And I've often thought that if my dad were able to return in 2010 and see the world just in these 36 years, it would be, it would be an absolutely different world. Think about if my dad were to turn the TV on. I mean, the first thing he'd be looking for is an antenna. Remember the rabbit ears? And the only channels he would know about are channels 2, 4, and 7, and maybe channel 50 if you had UHF. And some of you have no earthly idea what I'm talking about. But now everybody here, if you have a television, you have cable. And you've got this vast array of assorted uh, channel selections. And on those channels are shown things in prime time that my dad would have never seen on television. The standards have changed. The mores of the society have changed immensely in a relatively short period of time, in, in many of our lifetimes. And the pace of that change has accelerated. I have a book on my shelf. Here's the title. Faster. That's the, that's the title of the book. Faster, the acceleration of everything. 
that everything is changing at a is changing, but not only changing, but at a faster pace. And so we say it's been estimated that with the advent of the Internet and cable and other technologies, the amount of available information doubles every five years. So you now have technologies which are helpful for our productivity. I'm glad I have a cell phone. I'm glad I have a PC. You know, I'm glad for you know, the choices that we have, if used right, on television and all of that. I'm happy for all that. I'm thankful for all of that. But I also know that it can overload you and me with information. So we got stuff coming at us all the time. And the amount of available information doubling every five years, and here's what's happening. Fewer and fewer people are equipped to sort through that information. We have an increase in knowledge. Hear this. An increase in knowledge, but not an increase in wisdom. And knowledge and wisdom are not the same thing. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is what you do with the information. So what we're going to try to help you do in this class is to try to manage that, to try to see what wisdom means as it's applied to the task of parenting. And so this results in information overload, and it's hard to sort through what's good and what's bad and what's true and what's false. And so you get some people in our day, and perhaps you fit in this category, you just feel like you're walking around in a bit of a daze. And you have with you this sort of low-level paranoia. You know, am I getting it all right? Am I getting all the information? Am I getting the right information? I mean, I know I'm getting a lot of stuff, but am I sorting through the right stuff? Am I listening to the right people? Am I reading the right, the right books? I have a, another book on my shelf called Getting Things Done. And I always need help, and perhaps you do, with getting stuff done. It's just how to organize yourself in your personal life. It's very helpful. One of the principles that the author has in it is that if you really want to get things done, one of the first things you need to do is get things out of your head and on a list. If it's a computer list, if it's on your cell phone, if it's on a piece of paper, whatever it is, get it out of your head and get it on a list. Now, the reason I bring that up in this context is because with this information overload, if you don't sort through it, if you don't sift through it, you can have so much stuff going on in your head that is not categorized and is not sorted through, and it can create this sort of dazed, low-level paranoia approach for us. And so faced with this information overload, we say, many parents feel almost helpless in attempting to sort through all the opinions, the advice with which we're bombarded on a daily basis. How does one determine a course of action in the midst of such overwhelming choices? To what or whom should one turn for advice? And this lesson is going to examine some of the changes that have taken place in our culture that have impacted the way that families function. And then after we've surveyed that landscape, we want to turn to the scriptures. And there's a clue to you as to what source you should turn to. Turn to the scriptures, the source of direction and stability that's going to help us chart a course for the most important and exciting journey of our lives. So we have for you Roman numeral one. This is the kind of change that's happening. It's created pressures on the family. And those fall into a couple of categories, external and internal. First, external pressures on the family, things outside of our families that are putting pressure on them. Well, one of those things from the outside are shifts in the economy. And notice what I say there. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, the American economy was primarily agricultural. 
And as a result, due to the demands of an agrarian lifestyle, families were larger, they stayed together of necessity. But our industrial and now what economists call service economy has had a number of corresponding effects on the family. So here's what's being said there. Back when people lived on the farm, folks stayed around. Families hung around each other. Why? This is, this is the way you had to organize yourself in order to run the farm. You needed milkmaids. You needed cowhands. The boys worked on the farm. The women worked in uh, doing the domestic chores. Everybody pitched in. And when you started your own family, you didn't move very far away. When I was a kid, every year we used to go on vacation to my mom's upbringing in Pikeville, Kentucky. And one of the things that was so neat for me as a kid was when we would go to see Grandma and Grandpa in Pikeville, right next to their house was my mom's sister, her aunt, and their family. And right across the road was her, my uncle, her brother, and his family. And then right up this hill from Uncle Eddie is Uncle Gar Garland and, and his family. And you had all the family living around there. My mom moved up to Michigan because my dad was a, was a pastor. And he was pastoring a church up in Michigan. So we were sort of fish out of water, but everybody else pretty much stayed together. And that's the way it was. Now, think about how that impacts being a young mother. If you're a young mother trying to raise children, you have sisters around you. You have your mom right next door or right across the road to help you with that. And so these economic shifts have put external pressures upon the family. So extended family relationships, we say in your outline there, are now deemed optional. They were necessary back when the economy was that way. Now they're deemed optional. Notice this quotation. Functions that were formerly taken care of within the extended family are now performed by specialized agencies that are not based on kinship relationship. Things like caring for the elderly or one's occupation. You know, you used to learn an occupation from your dad. And he would teach you, a, teach you a trade, but that's long since gone. For many Americans, the extended family has gradually ceased to perform any function besides that of being a vehicle for friendship. And so what happens in our families now is we occupy the same building. We live at the same address. But in terms of our dependence on each other, it's hello and goodbye. And we're all kind of doing our, our own thing. That's an external pressure that we each feel in the family. Here's another one. Families are generally less equipped then to handle these tasks and hardship. Because we're so spread out now, loss of counsel and practical help from the extended family is lost. And as I said, many of you, many of us fit into this. Many of you young ladies don't have mom around. Who takes care of the children? Back in those days, you had ready-made caregivers within the home. Now we have to use daycare. And I'm not saying that that's something you shouldn't do. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying it's a change that puts pressure because I have to find somebody now to do this when I had somebody to do it in the past. So you have the loss of counsel and of help from the extended family. You have the lack of exposure to adult models within the family that are there on a regular basis that our children see. Because very often both of us are working outside the home. Somebody's having to care for the kids. Somebody else is having to care for the kids. They don't see us as much as they used to. And so the only kind of adult modeling they get is in whatever 
daily situation they are in. And as a result of this, a premium is placed on intimacy from a smaller number of people. We all know we need that. We all know we need that relationship. But at the same time, that relationship has been torn because partly of economic shifts in our society. And we desire, we place a premium on intimacy from a smaller number of people. I'm showing my age here, but you all remember the TV show Cheers? Remember how the opening song went? You, you want to go where everybody knows your name. Everybody wants to have some place where people know me and I know them. And so there they are, you know, and they're just exchanging their stuff, talking to the same people, talking to the same people, looking for their circle of intimacy and counsel and friends. More recent show by that very name, Friends, and for this very reason. And so extended family relationships are now deemed optional. We're generally less equipped to handle tasks and hardships. And notice C, families lack a sense of community. As I said, we simply occupy the same space, but we're going our different directions. So there's economic shifts. There are also cultural shifts. Let me list. I have some of these for you. Let me just uh, expand on them just a bit. The first one there is feminism. And feminism really got going in its own right in the 1960s. Most credit its beginning in 1966 with the publication of a book called The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. The Feminine Mystique. The beginning of what's known as the feminist movement. The idea here was was this. That as a woman, you could do anything a man can do. And, in fact, I remember a commercial when I was a kid in the 70s, the heyday of the feminist movement going. Uh, I forgot what it was advertising. I think it was uh, I think it was Virginia Slims because men smoke, we can smoke too. And so that was a big deal in the feminist movement. As a matter of fact, the Women's Tennis Association was sponsored by the Virginia Slims for years for that very reason. Anyway, there's this commercial and there's this gal on there and she's singing a song and she says, I can bring home the bacon... And I can fry it up in the pan. Any of you remember this? And all the while, never let you forget you're a man. Because I'm a woman. Or you had a song by Helen Reddy called, I am woman, hear me roar. So the idea was, women can do anything that, that men can do. Now, understand, I'm not against women's equality. But I am against the notion that men, that women can do everything men can do, or that men can do everything that women can do. The truth is, we can. We have two babies, and my wife had them both. Because I can't. And the truth is, there's stuff she can't do that I can do. We're just made differently. It's okay, not better or worse, just differently. And the fundamental flaw of feminism is to disregard that. Then there is androgyny. What's that mean? It's a big word, but it comes from two words. Andros, which means male. Gynos, so gynecologist. Gynos means female. And androgyny is then melding together male and female. And back when I was a kid growing up, you didn't have much androgyny. You had male stuff and you had female stuff. Let me just give you one example. If you went to get your hair cut as a man... There was a place where there were only men. And it was called a barber shop. 
And women didn't go to the barbershop. The only time they went to the barbershop was they had little boys to take to the barbershop. And then there were totally separate places called beauty parlors. And a man would not be caught dead in a beauty parlor. And they had the big dryers over the head and all that stuff. And so today we've got the advent of a new word. It's been around for a while now. Unisex. And so when I go to get my hair cut, there's a chick who's going who's gonna to cut my hair. I have actually found a place. I have to drive a long way that is still a barbershop. And it's still got that candy thing. And the guy puts the, the shaving cream on the back. He's got the razor. And when this guy dies, that'll be the last one of those in the country. But that was the, that was the way it was. And so you've got an androgyny, mixing of male and female. And it places pressures on our roles then. What's my role? What's, what's your role? Divorce. Divorce, we all know, is rampant. Nearly 50% of marriages end in divorce. The sexual revolution from the 60s and the 70s. As I said, if my dad were able to come back and just flip on the television, he would, be, he would think that just watching many primetime shows on cable would have been what the Playboy channel, if they had a Playboy channel, would have been like back in those days. And so the sexual revolution has put pressure, external pressure on families. Cohabitation, what is that? That means shacking up. That means, that means living together without being married. So there are external pressures. There are also internal pressures. Our culture is increasingly individualistic and secular. Individualism says, I don't need anybody else. Secular says, I don't need God. So individualistic, I don't need any of you, really. And secular, I don't need God. And in a culture that's becoming increasingly those, that puts... Internal, that's internal pressure because we buy into those values. And when we buy into those values in a society that has all the other things going on that I just described, now you've got some serious pressure on families. The absorption of those kinds of values adds additional internal pressures to those that I cited above. So who are you going to go to with all those pressures? Who and where are you going to go to try to find out how to raise a family? And I recommend that you go to the scriptures and that you go to the God who made the family, who designed men and women, who designed men and women to have children, and he actually has a purpose for that. And particularly in the face of all of these pressures, I do believe it is harder today. But it can be done, thanks be to God. And so what is the purpose for the family? Well, let me give you a few popular purposes, that is, purposes that people would popularly give, but they're not God's purposes. One would be just domestic tranquility. That means just peace within the four walls of our home. I don't want anybody to get killed. When I come home from work, I don't want everybody yelling. I want there to be some order to this. I just want some domestic tranquility. And if we can have that, we will have achieved our purpose for this home. Now, certainly we all want that. That's all a good thing, but that is not the purpose. Or to see the family as the stabilizing force for society. It should be that, and when it operates properly, it is that, but that's not God's purpose. Those things are byproducts of the purpose, but they are not the purpose. Or some would say to train our children to be productive members of society. I want my kid to get the best education he can get so he can get the best job that he can get, 
so he can make the most money that he can, so he can have the most peace of mind possible, so that he can be a productive member of society. And that's what many of us, even if we've never articulated, think. The best grades means the best school, means the best job, means the most money. Or happiness. And none of those are the purpose. They're all good things. Being a productive member of society, domestic tranquility, happiness. But these are just some examples of popular purposes. We're going to see God's purpose in just a bit. Now let me ask you, friends. Have you ever thought about Have you ever consciously thought about the purpose for your family? If you were forced to have to say, this is the purpose for our family, or write out the purpose for our family, have you actually consciously thought about that? Have you thought about why God gave it? Why did God make it and arrange it this way? Why does God have me playing a role in it? Hear this, if you've not consciously adopted Your purpose from Scripture, you will unconsciously absorb it from the culture. If you've not consciously adopted it from Scripture, you will unconsciously absorb it from the culture. You may have never thought about it, but you're absorbing what you think family is about from some other sources if you have not consciously adopted that purpose from God in Scripture. So what is God's purpose for the family? Three things. God intends the family to be his primary learning community. He intends it to be a sociological community, and he intends it to be a redeeming, a redemptive community. Those three things. Now, in our time remaining, let's look at those three purposes that God has for the family. A learning community, sociological community, and a redemptive community. First, the primary learning community for our children is to be in the family. And why is the family the ideal place to learn about God and about his world? Well, it is so because, you see, A, their life goes on in the family. Because family life is not like a classroom that can often be abstract and non-practical, right? We've all been in classes like that. It's in a book. I'm having it transferred from one person to me. But family life is in your face. Life takes place in the context of the family. And so we sit and listen to a lecture, and the only thing we really care about is, is this going to be on the test? If it's not going to be on the test, then I don't really care about it in my lecture. But in the family, you don't have that option. You have to care about all that is taking place. The family is a place that's filled with the stuff of life. Day-to-day interaction of family learning takes place about ourselves, about one another, about God. In those day-to-day interactions where life is taking place, in the stuff of life, I'm learning about God, about myself, and about others. Now, how am I doing that? When we live together in the stuff of family, that should teach us something about all of those, about ourselves, about one another, about God. So, just as an everyday example, in our house we've got a a bathroom. Uh, We have one and a half. But there's one male and there are three females. So there's almost never one available for me. And if I get up in the morning and everything is occupied, as it normally is, because girls have to get up really early in order to have everything just right, you know. And so if I knock on the door, uh, the answer I get is, 
someone is in here. Is it anyone I know? I respond. I can get irritated at being shut out of the bathroom all the time because I'm outnumbered three to one. This irritation teaches me something about me. It also teaches me something about the other people in my family. How much do we care about each other to defer to each other? There are numerous examples that they could give where that is tested in my life as well. And so just in the day-to-day stuff of life, we are taught about ourselves, about our own self-centeredness, about our relationships with others. And notice B here, God actually sweats the small stuff. We often make the mistake of thinking that God only cares about the big things. And so I don't want my kid to get kicked out of school. And if my kid is in trouble at school, I need help. That's a big thing. So let's, let's address that. Or if my husband and I are on the verge of divorce, we're having troubles, I need help with that. That's a big thing. But see, God cared about all the little stuff that led up to that, to your kid getting in that kind of trouble at school, to you and your spouse having those kinds of difficulties at home. God sweats the small stuff. Most of life is lived in the mundane so that we can see others and we can see God and then we'll be effective in learning what God has for us in the family. I say in your notes there, the little things matter. And God loves you enough to reveal things, make things known in the mundane of life. We live in the mundane and therefore if he does not rule in the mundane, he does not rule you. If God doesn't rule that bathroom encounter, then in that moment he's not ruling you. And God wants to be a part of even what we consider the small stuff. And so the family is therefore meant to be the laboratory for the study of God. Remember this, friends. We can't understand anything, I say in the notes, apart from God and his plan. John Calvin said this, there's no knowing that does not begin with knowing God. Now here's all we mean by that. You can know all sorts of facts and never care about God. You can be really intelligent and never think about God. You could be able to... about statistics all the time and an answer to any issue and care nothing about God. That's all true. But you can't understand those facts. You can't know those facts and their relationship to the larger picture unless you have the understanding, the perspective that only God can provide. And so... Life goes on in the family. God sweats the small stuff. And notice, see there, you're intended to be your child's primary educator. The family's the place where we learn about God, ourselves, and others. And it is you. Not Oprah. Not Dr. Phil. You. Me. Now, that's scary. That I'm then my child's primary educator in this laboratory that is the home. That is scary, but it also has great privileges. But it's not the school system either. Now, I'm not against schools of any type, public, private, homeschooling. But hear this, no matter which type of schooling you choose for your child, you can never abdicate the responsibility to educate your children. You can only delegate portions of it to somebody else. It is always our responsibility. 
And so if all of that is true, and it is, and you and I are our children's primary educators, then what does that say about the model that we put before them? What does it say about the need for us to progress in our relationships with God and others? And if you say to yourself, you know, I've never thought about any of that. I haven't been doing that. Well, there's great hope because you're here, and we're going to spend 11 more weeks looking at what that looks like. And what God wants us to learn about him and about others and about ourselves in the context of of family. If your child is 15 and you say, you know, I'm already starting to realize I haven't thought about some of this stuff. I've already blown it. I have a 15-year-old. I have a 12-year-old. God can intervene. God can help you change course with that 15-year-old. And so I encourage you to stick around. You have a child that's made in the image of God. And you have the all-important responsibility of raising that child as God has described in Scripture. And God has equipped both you and your child to participate in that learning process for the three reasons that I have listed for you there. Your children, just like you, were made in three particular very important ways. We are made to be revelation receivers. We are made to be interpreters. And we are made to be worshipers, revelation receivers, interpreters, and worshipers. Now, let me just explain what those are, and then we'll stop there and pick up next week, okay? We were made to be revelation receivers. Here's what that means. That amongst all of God's creation, humanity is made in the image of God, which includes the capacity to receive information from God. For God to reveal, to make known. That's what we mean by saying a revelation receiver. God talks to people. You say, really? You hear voices? God talks to us in the pages of a book that he authored. And before he authored the book, the first man, Adam, was talked to by his creator. And I want you to just think about being that first guy. Adam. And you hear a voice that says, Adam. You've never heard a voice before. There are no other voices for you to hear. But what does Adam do? Does Adam say, I haven't learned to talk yet? If he says that, he's learned to talk. He responds, right? And why does he respond? Because he was made with the ability to receive that communication and respond to that communication. We were made to be revelation receivers inherently. And so your child exhibits these great abilities before you've taught them any of this just innately to receive instruction and to reject your instruction as well. But they have this innate ability to do that. And you wonder, wow, how can I do that? How can I learn to talk like that? How can they learn to put it together? Here's how. They were made to do that. So your child was made to be a revelation receiver, as are you. And it has great implications for the parenting task. They were made to be interpreters so that they look at their world. And they're to see facts, but they're to see those facts in relation to the big picture. Interpret their world and interpret their world properly. And then lastly, we say they were made to be worshipers. Hear this. Even if you haven't been going to church, if you haven't had a relationship with God, if you haven't been thinking about God, make no mistake, you've been worshiping all, all the while. 
Because we are all always worshiping, showing the worth, that's what the word means, worthship, showing the worth of what we value. And you are always at all times worshiping someone or something. And so you're always worshiping. The question is who or what are you worshiping? And our children were made to be worshipers. All of those have great implications for the parenting task, that we were made to be revelation receivers, interpreters, and worshipers. So we'll see that and pick that up next week, all right? Let's ask the Lord to bless us in our 11 weeks together. I hope you'll be able to come again. We will start at 11.15 next week as we have this week. Let's bow. Father, we thank you for this precious time together over these next many weeks to look at this important issue of parenting. Thank you for giving us the privilege of being your vehicles in the lives of these precious little ones that you've entrusted to us. It is a sacred responsibility that we must carry out before you. I thank you for these dear friends who see the seriousness of this issue such that they're willing to put this time in to learn what you have to say about this important task. And I pray over these next 11 weeks that I will be able to articulate what you have said in your word and make practical application of that to my life and to our lives so that the next generation will have instilled in them that which you've intended and that we might honor you in the way we go about our parenting. Go with us this week as we seek to serve you. We ask you to grant us safety until we return next week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.